You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. And I'm Kevin McClunthan. And you know, Wade, given the somewhat unusual pairing of films that we have this week, I wasn't necessarily expecting to be racked by existential questions from both of them. But here we are. It's a brave new world. What is life? What is our purpose? Are we made of plastic or flesh and bone? Only the monolith knows, Wade. Today in the episode, we begin with our review of the fourth film in the Toy Story franchise, Toy Story 4. And then we're going to be taking on a film that looms large over the landscape of cinema with the third film in our Summer of Stan series, 2001, A Space Odyssey. Here's to hoping that this conversation serves a purpose. All that's coming up on this episode, episode 206 of Seeing and Believing. Uh, hey, howdy. Hey there. Uh, sorry to bother you, but... Why, you're not a bother at all. We were just out for my early morning stroll. And look, <laughs> we met you. My name is Gabby Gabby, and this is my very good friend, Benson. Oh, uh, Woody, pleasure to meet you. Well, it's nice to meet you, Woody. And you are... This is Forky. I'm trash. Our, our, our kid made him. Kid? Toys around here don't have kids. Are you two lost? Lost? <laughs> no, no, but we are looking for a lost toy. She's a figurine, used to be in that lamp in the window. Name's Bo Peep. Bo Peep? Oh, yes, I know Bo. You do? Hop on in. We'll take you to her. Oh, well, you don't have to do that. <laughs> well, okay. Yes, we are here, episode 206 of Seeing and Believing. And, Kevin, I was thinking of a couple of ways these films were connected. Now, we're not here to try to find some sort of... I don't know, skin or connection point between Stanley Kubrick's film and Toy Story 4. But there are a couple ways that they are similar. They cross over. The first is both of these films are rated G, Kevin. I think this is the first time in Seeing and Believing History that we have reviewed two G-rated films on the same podcast. We're just, we're keeping it clean today. (laughs) You said it. Uh, You know, and I'm glad to see that we can still do that in this day and age where, you know, I kind of miss the G rating. It's it's an underappreciated rating. It shows up less and less. I'm glad that we can give it some love this week. No, I think that's really good. It is nice to be able to see a couple of... Uh, I, I don't know, high quality G films. I won't show my cards too early, but we could say that. It's very different too because we could be reviewing like a PG movie from today and then maybe like one of those PG movies like Temple of Doom that's obviously should be <laughs> rated R or PG-13. But that's not that's not the case today. No, no. the It's Stanley Kubrick, at least in this film, was squeaky clean in more ways than one. <laughs> okay, and then the second connection point, Kevin, is Toy Story 2. The very beginning opens with a sequence where Buzz Lightyear is, he's basically, it's basically the video game. So Rex is playing the video game. And Buzz Lightyear is jumping from disc to disc. And we get the soundtrack, the song, the classical piece of music, Thus Spake Zarathustra by Richard Strauss, that's used, of course, in 2001 A Space Odyssey. So there is there is some connection point between these two films, Kevin, even if they are very different. 
Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Wade. I didn't remember that that was a little uh, gag in Toy Story 2 until you reminded me of it just now. But that is a really great little touch from from that film. Yeah, and two, I think probably the most referenced filmmaker in the Toy Story franchise is Stanley Kubrick. And there are many, many references to The Shining, uh, especially, I believe, in, in Toy Story 3. There's some articles out there, so make sure to kind of our listeners can Google it and check it out. But uh, yeah, references to the carpet to room 237. That's kind of all across the Toy Story franchise. So uh, a little bit of connection point. Before we get into Kubrick's science fiction classic, we're headed to infinity and beyond with our discussion of Toy Story 4. Directed by Josh Cooley, who makes his feature film debut with the project, the newest entry in Pixar's beloved saga sees Woody and the gang on a road trip with their new kid, Bonnie. Alongside them for the ride is Forky, voiced by Tony Hale, a toy crafted by Barney from art supplies at her new school. When Woody, voiced once again by Tom Hanks, stumbles upon an old antique shop, he soon comes face-to-face with new challenges as well as his old flame, Bo Peep, voiced once again by Annie Potts. Toy Story 4 also introduces a host of new characters, which includes the voice talents from Keegan-Michael Key, Jordan Peele, Keanu Reeves, and Christina Hendricks, who plays a sinister doll named Gabby Gabby. Kevin, I've been very much looking forward to this film. I've mentioned that a number of times on the podcast, and I'm excited to offer my take But before I grab hold of the mic, I'd like to hear about your experience with the movie. How did Toy Story fare for you, and did it bring back any childhood nostalgia? (laughs) Well, I am glad that you framed it that way because you were really excited about this film. I was decidedly not excited about Toy Story 4. I thought that Toy Story 3, which came out about 10 years ago, just was such... I thought a a perfect ending for these characters It sort of brought things full circle in a lot of ways with its closing shot being a bookend to the opening shot of the first Toy Story. I I liked how kind of all the characters, even down to Mr. Potato Head, got their moment in the sun in Toy Story 3. So it was all wrapped up so nicely. When I heard that there was going to be a Toy Story 4, I was unexcited not because I dislike the franchise, but just because I couldn't imagine a good movie following such a wonderful conclusion as Toy Story 3. So having said that, I was going to this film with some pretty low expectations. I was expecting, frankly, to be pretty down on it, and I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. I do think that Toy Story 4 maybe works best as a standalone entry in the franchise, more so than a continuation of the story and characters laid down in the first three films. And we can get into that a little bit later. But overall, yeah, this was a pleasant surprise to me, and I had a pretty good time with it overall. Yeah, that's really good to hear. And I, I, I think I can understand what you mean by this sort of standalone film. It definitely feels like the start of something new. So you could almost begin here and go in a number of different directions. I I like the film, Kevin. And and I heard from a number of people who saw the film before I did that it seemed to sort of change the focus of the franchise. 
And that Woody needs to come to terms with his personal happiness and sort of prioritize that above the happiness of other people. And so I, I was a little, I was a little worried, but I didn't think the film went in that direction. Actually, it felt like it went kind of in a different direction. It has a lot to do with meaning and with purpose. And I'm sure we're going to like dig in deep. We've already conversed a bit on uh, Facebook and we kind of know where we, where we differ. But this movie is just a lot of fun. And I wanted, I want to go into detail on the animation as we move forward. But the animation is, it's beautiful. It's, it's majestic at times. I love the setting of this entire story. We, we have, uh, these characters kind of going on a road trip and we get this beautiful, mountain scenery in the background we get some carnival sequences during the day and some at night and those are really great to look at and they they reminded me of visiting a theme park or an amusement park uh, a carnival I, I really enjoyed those we get some scenes where these characters are in an antique shop and they're going behind shelves and there's cobwebs and it almost looks like they're walking through these these dark alleyways. It's just, it's fantastic to look at. And I think a good way to frame this story visually is the beginning images. So in three and in a number of other Toy Story films, we begin with that kind of classic shot, right? So the classic shot of Andy's wallpaper, blue sky with white clouds. And Toy Story 3, of course, begins and ends with the clouds. And then in this film, we get the beginning in a storm. There's rain. It's, it's very, it's a very different beginning. And then the film ends with a look at the moon. And if I had to kind of sum up the chief maybe metaphor or what this film is, is trying to look at, it's late adulthood. It's empty nesters. And that just kind of, it just surprised me. What happens when you get towards the latter part of your life? So a lot to kind of talk about, but I but I did enjoy this film, even if there were some things that I wish we could we could kind of tinker. You're you're getting into a little bit of why I think this film works best as a standalone is because there are those aesthetic departures that you mentioned. The the way that the film opens on a storm, the way that it gets away from some of the visual motifs that we're used to in the Toy Story franchise. It also, uh, going back to the animation, it also kind of takes the Toy Story visual sense into new territory. It's very well done. Like the, the animation is maybe some of the best that we've ever seen out of Pixar. And that's kind of maybe something that is said with every new Pixar film, just because the technology keeps getting better and better, their expertise keeps increasing. But in this case, I think the technological advancements really do a lot to set apart the film and make it its own beast. And I think that that is really carried through in the use of the environments. In the previous Toy Story films, fittingly for a story about toys, you know, there's lots of bright colors, lots of smooth surfaces that work really well in interacting with the characters themselves, the smooth plastic of a toy, the the simple features of of Buzz Lightyear and Woody, they're, you know, they're a little bit exaggerated. They're not meant to look 
photorealistic. And by doing that, they kind of managed to cover for some maybe more technical limitations by just really leaning into that hard plastic aesthetic of the toy box. With this film, though, they really go a different direction and place a lot more emphasis on realistic environments. There's a sequence where Woody and the new character, Forky, are walking along a a deserted highway. It's after... Uh, there's been some rain, and you can see the uh, the wetness on the asphalt. The forest on the roadside looks pretty much like a real forest. And as they walk along, Josh Cooley chooses different camera angles to almost emphasize the fact that he's creating a simulacrum of reality. It's almost like he's using the animation angles to mimic a physical camera filming physical toys walking down a road, even though we know that that's not what's happening. And all of that comes together to suggest, like you hinted at, a more a more developed sense of the world around Woody. Because this is really Woody's film when you come right down to it. And reflecting his changing perception of his place in the world. And the aesthetic shift towards more photorealistic environment and a slightly less uh, brightly colored and smooth featured world really works together with that. And two, just to kind of observe the visual storytelling here, we get a lot of great whips with the camera, quick pans, these focus pulls, these tracking shots. You mentioned that that shot where Forky and Woody are kind of just walking and talking and the camera's following them. You get some great blocking with the environment in the background with the quote-unquote props. You get some great zooms. All of it feels a little more grounded and outside the toy box. And I also appreciate too just the... I guess you could say the detail that went into this film, not just visually, but with the story. When I heard about Toy Story 4, I was obviously worried and still looking forward to it, but just kind of, okay, where is the movie going to go next? Because you've got the general storyline. They get, the toys get separated from their, their children and there's, a character who seems nice, but who's actually really sinister. So maybe that's uh, the prospector from Toy Story 2 or you know, the bear from Toy Story 3. And this film, I felt like it's probably, I don't even say the worst of the four. It's not as good as 1, 2, or 3. But I think 1, 2, and 3 are just, like, incredible. It's a, it's, I think it's still a good film. But... It's very different, not only visually, but just in many different arenas. And it felt like there was time and effort kind of put into this. And I want to see it again because I think a repeat viewing will help me to kind of dig into some more jokes. I like the inclusion of Combat Carl. So you have the first film, uh, Combat Carl gets blown up by Sid. You have a Combat Carl here, and it's voiced by Carl Weathers, who we know from the uh, the Rocky movies. And there's a scene, too, where 
Woody uh, is kind of placed into the closet. So Bonnie's not playing with him as much. He feels kind of useless. This is a film I think about getting old. And there are these toys in the closet. And they essentially say, hey, it's, you know, it's not too bad. Like, it's okay. It just, it happens. It's, it's life. It's going to happen to everybody eventually. And the voices for those are Carol Burnett, Mel Brooks, uh, and Betty White. And it's just kind of, Funny, the thought that went into kind of every single detail with this story. And so it didn't come across as lazy or simply this cash grab, though it was a really good decision, a good business decision by Disney to to release this film. It felt like it came from the heart and it felt like there was effort put into making this movie really good. Yeah, I'm I'm of two minds about that. I do appreciate that this doesn't feel like a cash and sequel it does feel like care was taken with it there's a lot of intriguing questions raised about what toyness is like with the character of forky he's constructed out of literal trash by bonnie and she sort of loves him into existence the the moment where he kind of becomes sentient is she gives him a hug and then puts him in her backpack and he comes to life uh, that raises a lot of interesting questions about, well, what's you know what's the difference between literal pieces of trash and toys that sooner or later are themselves going to be consigned to the dustbin? There's all sorts of really intriguing questions like that, um, and Woody's journey in this film, where where he ends up, there was obviously a lot of thought put into. Well, what places can he go next that doesn't feel like like a cheat? I don't know that I entirely am satisfied by where they ended up going, but I do think that there it, it's a very thoughtful place that ends up going. My reservations come in in two ways. Uh, the first one is that, like I said earlier, this feels like Woody's story more than a toy story, if that makes sense. The supporting cast around Woody doesn't really get as much time to breathe as they did in, for example, Toy Story 3. Even Buzz Lightyear's signature catchphrase, he doesn't even get to finish it. Woody finishes Buzz Lightyear's signature catchphrase in this film, and I think that that kind of suggests how little interest, or at least how little attention, was paid to the supporting cast's in the toy box, it's mostly Woody and Bo and uh, Forky are kind of the the central trio, and the other characters are a lot more ancillary. And I find that to be a little bit dissatisfying. Even more dissatisfying to me, though, is the question of well, what is toyness that this film raises? The answer that it provides, I think, diverges from the first three films in a way that. Yeah, isn't necessarily inferior per se, but it fits uneasily, I think, with what's been established for uh, the toys in the previous three films and felt maybe, if not out of character, at least like it was grafted on and doesn't feel fully of a piece with, with those earlier films. So I, I think for, for me, the biggest weakness is probably that there are some incredible characters that we don't see much of. I think Rex, Ham, Mr. Potato Head, they're fantastic, and they get some of the best laughs across the entire franchise. Now, obviously, uh, Don Rickles has passed away, and so they had to use archival sound for Mr. Potato Head, so you can kind of see that. But those other characters, too, they're just they're in the background, and this does feel like Woody's story. 
we get some great new characters. I mentioned uh, Key and Peele, and they play uh, Bunny and Ducky. They're really fantastic. Keanu Reeves plays Duke Kaboom, a Canadian uh, stuntman, and he's he's fantastic. But the other characters, they're just they're in the background, and I think that's the film's uh, biggest weakness. I I like what the film says, and, and there are a lot of ways to kind of go about this. But essentially, what I took away from the movie is that the chief end of of not man but the chief end of toys is to serve uh, children and i use that plural because it kind of changes so you have andy uh, but their purpose is you know it's tied up in him and then it goes to bonnie and for some toys their purpose is to serve groups of children so we see that in Toy Story 3 with Sunnyside. You have a group of, of toys, and it's their purpose to make these children happy. So the idea of purpose overall serving these children. And Woody begins to understand, and it's difficult for him to understand this, that his role because of age, and, and not just wear and tear, but because he's a cowboy living in this technologically advanced world he his characters are kind of dull they're brown they're tan they're not as bright he's not as in fashion he has to understand that his purpose while the same plays out differently so his job is to serve children somehow and but because of age because of time that looks differently than it did with Andy or maybe a few years earlier with Bonnie and I like the way that it plays out because in either direction he has to sacrifice something whether that's to stay the same or to move forward he has to sacrifice relationships friendships whatever it is so I think that that works pretty well and then too I mentioned before about late adulthood and, and empty nesters. I think this is a film about what it means to grow old. And while every metaphor kind of breaks down, you have this almost parent-child type relationship with Andy, and they move on from him. And I don't think, you know, the film's not necessarily saying, hey, like you stop being a parent, but your role does change. And in a sense, you do say goodbye to that child or that person because they become someone else. And they're a different person than they were before. And then we see them move on to Bonnie. Bonnie could be this this grandchild. They have this second chance. And one character even says that to Woody. You had a second chance. And then as time passes, your role begins to change. And I think the idea of wisdom that's associated with late adulthood and the passing on of that wisdom is a theme here. And so all of that to say, it's kind of a long-winded way to say, I, I felt that the film kind of resonated with me. And then also to the idea of, you know, you put so much time into your, your children and then what about you and your spouse? What about that relationship? How can you fulfill purpose together? So I'd love to hear your thoughts and you get into this a little bit deeper too, Kevin. Yeah, I, there, there's something that I find a little bit dissatisfying about viewing the toys as some sort of, uh, as a sort of surrogate for uh, for the audience's feelings. I mean, you brought up the the analogy of parenthood. It's not a perfect analogy by by any means, but I think why I find myself resistant to that is I find it less interesting to think of the toys 
as basically human beings in toy form and more compelling to think about well they're they're not humans though they're toys so what is it what does it mean to be a toy and with the earlier films it seems like what emerged out of them was the concept of of endings the fact that everything ends children grow up uh, they stop playing with toys. They stop wanting to engage in that kind of imaginative play in general. And for the toy, that that is an ending for them. That's something that at at some point they have to uh, move on, move on from that. To use your language, but not because they're moving on to something else. It's because they're simply toys, and their time has ended. I, I find that to be a lot more dramatically interesting and a lot more bittersweet. With the ending of Toy Story 2, you think about how Woody, at the, his entire arc over that film, is trying to choose between immortality, where he can be on display in a museum and be adored by generations of children, or whether he's going to go back to Andy and eventually be forgotten and sold or thrown away or lost somehow. And Woody, the choice he makes at the end of Toy Story 2 to embrace that rather than running from it or fretting about it, I think is a really, really powerful moment in the franchise. And there's a lot of wisdom in that, in the, in the idea that there is, we can't keep going on forever. We do grow and change, but at some point we end. Uh, and... I think the 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 first three Toy Story movies do a really good job of nodding at that specter of essentially death without really but exploring it I guess through a safe medium of toys uh being forgotten. And I think that that makes a lot more sense than in this film which again it's it's interesting enough to see Woody kind of realize that his role has changed and that he maybe should move on. I don't find it to jibe at all with the sort of almost existential horror that overcomes the toys at the mere thought of being lost or forgotten or replaced. In the earlier films, it almost feels like a death to them. In this film, it feels sort of like, well, you can move on and do other things, though, so it's really all okay. And I think that robs the decisions that Woody makes in these earlier films to continue loving the child he's with even though he knows that he he knows that death awaits him more or less i I find that to be much more interesting and leads to more satisfying character explorations than this film which kind of basically says well woody's going to have adventures forever and that's not really i don't think that that's that's not really how life works and that's not how toys work because toys do eventually uh become trash like forky and i think that Acknowledging that and allowing the characters to reach the end of that arc and to leave them there leads to a more satisfying, finished uh, story than something like this where it's continuing a franchise, but to what end? Yeah, I mean, I think visually the detail in the animation speaks to how these characters are sort of disintegrating. I particularly like the design of Buzz Lightyear. There weren't many changes, but you can see the stickers 
sort of slowly peeling off of his of his plastic body. You see some more dirt. You see some more stains in some of these characters, and we realize that they are that they are getting old. And there's even a really there's a really fascinating, strange, odd subplot with Woody, and I'm not going to say it, but it definitely speaks to how our bodies do fall apart and giving of ourselves, our physical bodies to the world around us. It, I, I never expected something like that to be in a kid's film, but it's there and, and, and I think it does speak to it. I, I also think to that change where these characters realize that if they lost an owner, they would somehow survive. It, it seems to be this sort of wisdom in the face of experience, that sort of resilience that comes from living this long kind of full life and knowing that it will happen. So in the first two films, it was just, you know, we just, we just stay with Andy. We're here when he needs us. And in this film, it's like, hey, we've gone through tough times and we know this isn't going to last forever. I really love Toy Story 2, Kevin, and I appreciate you kind of bringing that up. I was having a conversation with my friend Taylor, and he pointed out something really great with that movie. The idea of, of Toy Story 2 kind of happening in the context of Pixar really blowing up and Toy Story becoming this huge film and the individuals who worked on it. Uh, becoming famous in their own, in their own ways. And Andy is seen as a leader. He's seen as this, uh, this foundation in Andy's world. In the second film, his arm starts to fall off and he realizes that he's actually, he's actually famous and he could be famous outside of his own home, but he chooses to go back. And it's this kind of great, uh, illustration, this metaphor for you can go out and you can, you can be famous in the world and you can be well known and people can know you here or there. But when you come back home, you're just, you're just you. You're just a dad. You're just a mom. You're just a, a brother. And I think the film really does a great job. I, I just wanted to talk to, about Toy Story 2 for a moment because you brought it up. Uh, but yeah, no, I, I, I really like the thematic territory for this movie. And it speaks to the the number of layers because you can look at this as kind of a projection of parental fears. These toys aren't exact stand-ins for parents, but they do work through those emotions. But you can also look at it from the creator-creation aspect. Now, ultimately, that metaphor kind of breaks down because the only character that's really created by a child is is Forky, but their identity in their love and in their purpose. So I think there are a lot of cool ideas to kind of play around with with this movie. Yeah, I, you know, I, I do want to push back a little bit about the uh, on on the assertion that, you know, the only toy that gets created is Forky, which is true. Um, but Stephen Gray Donis uh, over at the National Catholic uh, Daily Register, in his review, he pointed out that for most of the toys in, in this entire franchise, the there's an analog with the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. And of course, that's the, the famous children's story where the Velveteen Rabbit is this, you know, he's a stuffed animal. And he, he learns that if a child loves you enough, you become real. And Stephen makes the point in, in his review that a lot of the toys are like the Velveteen Rabbit in that, you know, they're sentient 
with you know without a child around to play with them but they really become truly alive and kind of attain this higher purpose when a child is loving them and is playing with them and is engaging with them in that way and that's where they find their joy is in lending giving themselves up for that purpose so I, I think that the there's a lot to dig into there with the relationship between creator and created, not because Woody was literally made physically by a child, but the fact that Andy and then later Bonnie, to give himself in, in service of, of making them happy is kind of him fulfilling his purpose in the same way that a creation would fulfill its uh, purpose for the creator. That's my pitch anyway. I'm still kind of working that out, but... It's why I find Toy Story 2 and 3 especially so satisfying and so interesting to think about and why Toy Story 4, even though I did have a good time with it and think it's a good film, didn't satisfy me quite as much as that. Yeah, and I I think that's a great metaphor or way of looking at the story. And like I said, it, it all kind of breaks down if you push it too hard. But I think the emotions and the ideas are kind of all there and... And it speaks to the complexity of this series, and and you know I think I think this movie too. Uh, let's go into some of the characters before we head out. I mentioned some of the newer characters that I liked. I know some people had a problem with the quote unquote villain in this film, Gabby Gabby. I like the villain. I think that there's this tweak or change that makes it a little bit different, and definitely speaking to the idea too of. Of grace too, and I, I think I think that works pretty well. And Bo Peep makes she makes this kind of change throughout the film, and she has a small arc. I would have liked to see that be a little bit wider, but I think she does make this this shift as the movie moves forward as a result of Woody and his interactions with her. And then even to Woody, you know, we think we know this character, but he comes into this world and he's not very confident. It, this is not the Woody of the first three films. And I think part of that is due to this transition, this aimlessness. He feels like he's completed something and he doesn't know where to go next. And I like that character arc in this movie. As far as Gabby Gabby goes, I think she's a really great villain for about two thirds of the film. Uh, there's a turn that she makes in the, in the last act that I think diminishes how much you can enjoy her, her her villainy in the earlier parts of the film. And I don't think really work from a, a storytelling perspective. It's just, it's a very odd choice for me. The, the way that the actions that she takes in the early parts of the film kind of get recontextualized in a way that isn't fully satisfying to me. I love Key and Peele's stuffed circus animals. I think they, they bring a level of madcap comedy to the film that I think it really needed. Uh, Buzz Lightyear tended to fill that role in the previous films. He's kind of sidelined inexplicably in this film, which given that that's the case, it's nice to see Key and Peele kind of take take up the mantle and really deliver in that area. They're, they're a lot of fun. Yeah, they're, they're great. Uh, and okay. So if we're talking about emotions too, I, I felt emotional towards the end. I kind of teared up a little bit at the end, didn't cry, but I will say this. There were times when tears came down my eyes, but it was not because of just uh, sadness. Uh, it was because of laughter. And there's this great sequence with Bunny and Ducky. It's so funny. And it just keeps kind of going and going. And you know where it's headed. 
but it's just so I couldn't stop laughing. It's really great. Yeah, for sure. They are a sight to behold. Well, listeners, that is our review of Toy Story 4. If you have seen this film and want to share your thoughts about the nature of toyness or the comedy stylings of Keen Peel or how this fits in with the previous three films, we'd love to hear those thoughts. As always, you can get in touch with us on email at seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com, or you can send us a tweet at cbelievepod on Twitter. Don't go anywhere. We're going to continue our summer of Stan in the second segment with 2001 A Space Odyssey. song is Down in the Depths by Agus Blue. You know, Kevin, I really appreciate all the people who've supported us, just like those toys support Andy and Bonnie and all their other children. (laughs) These (laughs) listeners, though, they've supported us not through just kind of helping us through school, but instead by supporting our Patreon campaign. It's really easy. There are a lot of levels of support, and we say this every week. But one of our favorite levels is the what can you buy for $5 level. It's a donation level, and it raises a good question, Kevin. What could someone buy for $5? $5 would get you a treasure map for lost golf balls. (laughs) You look at the map, it's a golf course, and there are literally dots everywhere, especially in the the pond lake area. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's a $5 treasure map. You're not going to get a whole lot for that $5 treasure map. You, you know, you get you kind of get what you pay for. So golf balls instead of tr- chests of buried gold. Yeah, that's just the way the way things are. Hopefully you'll make your money back. I mean, it's only $5. We, yeah, if you like golf. <laughs> it, it, it's a double win. So you can take that $5. You can also put it back into the podcast. Just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast kevin we also really appreciate it when people interact with us on twitter uh, they send us emails and i'm hoping we get some emails about toy story 4 because i know people have felt all sorts of ways about that film and so we'd love to read that on the air we did have a comment from a listener named christian and he retweeted our uh, podcast was from two weeks ago kevin it's when we reviewed under the silver lake And he says this, I'm a frequent listener to this podcast, but I don't remember ever being quite as surprised by it. And then he says, this is a good thing. As I am hearing the host go to bat for Under the Silver Lake. I'm going to have to see that film if it ever plays closer than an hour from my house. 
And then he says it would help if the stream didn't keep cutting out. Who knows, maybe the hosts turn on the film a minute further into the podcast. Did I speak too soon? Christian, thanks for that tweet out. And no, you didn't. We we stayed the course, Kevin. We we expressed interest in that film, that strange little <laughs> film. Yes, we, we continued to be at bat for Under the Silver Lake, a film that for all its flaws is like nothing else that I've really seen this year. So yeah, uh, sorry to hear about the problems with the stream, but hopefully you were able to get it up and running and uh, satisfy the suspense that you were feeling over whether or not we (laughs) decided to hate it after you stopped listening. So thanks for writing in Christian. Yeah, the podcast is a journey in and of itself. Like you can you can you never know where it's going to lead, where it's going to head, and we're excited to talk about 2001: A Space Odyssey coming up. But listeners, make sure that you send us your thoughts. I mentioned that earlier, but you can do so at C Belief Pod at C Belief Pod, or you can email us Seeing and Believing CAPC at gmail dot com. Rotate the pod, please, Hal. I don't think he can hear us. Yeah, I'm sure we're okay. Well. What do you think? I'm not sure. What do you think? I've got a bad feeling about him. You do? Yeah, definitely. Don't you? I'm afraid I agree with you. We'd have to cut his higher brain functions Uh without disturbing the purely automatic and regulatory systems. And we'd have to work out the transfer procedures of continuing the mission under ground-based computer control. Yeah. Well, that's far safer than allowing Hal to continue running things. You know, another thing just occurred to me. Mm. Well, as far as I know, no 9,000 computers have been disconnected. Well, no 9,000 computers ever fouled up before. That's not what I mean. Mm. Well, I'm not so sure what you think about it. Welcome back to the second half of our show. I feel like emerging from the middle segment, we should maybe have some of that grand Strauss music accompanying <laughs> us. But, you know, that's maybe not not possible this time around. But it is a momentous time, Wade, because of all the films to receive a full segment review on this show, arguably the film we're about to talk about here has the most vaunted reputation of them all. Have you prepared yourself for this <laughs> next step in seeing and believing's evolution? You know, it. I, I've, I try not to read too many reviews, if any, for new films, because I like to just go in fresh, have my perspective, and then after the podcast, I'll go and check it out. Now, sometimes I, I break that rule, and I've, I've quoted people before. But when we're getting into these, you know, these big films, these Stanley Kubrick movies, I feel like I gotta, I gotta do a lot of homework just to try to see what everybody else is saying. So it's not just this regurgitation of, of what we've heard for years about this movie. So, I I think I'm ready, but truth be told, who is ready when they're talking about 2001 A Space Odyssey? (laughs) Well, you know, we're never ones to shrink from a challenge, even with a film of what you could say the Titanic scope and legacy as Kubrick's 1968 sci-fi opus. In a lot of ways, 2001 towers over the sci-fi films that followed it, like the black monoliths that appear over the course of its narrative, causing the genre to progress by leaps and bounds in innovative ways. The antiseptic interiors, sleek white designs, sense of scale, and conception of futuristic space travel are all so influential that most sci-fi films you can think of afterward either aped its production design, 
such as the Star Trek films, or else we're responding directly to it, maybe even deconstructing it, such as, say, Ridley Scott's Alien. But it was Kubrick's ambitious attempt to chart mankind's growth from prehistoric simians to masters of outer space travel and beyond that, for a lot of viewers at least, has really cemented the film's legacy even over 50 years later. So, like I said, Wade, this is an ambitious film. There's a lot to dig into here. It would not have survived for as long as it had if it couldn't inspire such fevered debate, conversation, and speculation. So to get us started, maybe we'll just start in one place and maybe branch out from there. There's a lot going on in this film. As you were watching it this time around, what did you find most intriguing to think about, to mull over, to explore in your own writing uh, in in this film's themes? Yeah, I think the word that kind of comes to mind the most on this watch is finiteness. And I, I saw the film one time. So this is my second viewing. I saw it once maybe 10 years ago, maybe a little less than 10 years ago. And I, I think it was kind of more caught up in the story, just trying to figure out what this film was about. And here I was able to to settle down and really get into hopefully the philosophical mode that Kubrick wants us to be in when we watch this movie. And, you know, you get these shots of space and these pods and these these ships, these small pods, these small ships that are large in comparison to us, but small in comparison to space. You get the, the jump cut from millions of years ago to 2001, to the future. You, you get that end scene where... Uh, where Dave watches himself grow old and Kubrick seems to be saying, Hey, like we're, we're going to be gone. Humanity as we know it is going to, is going to end at some point. And we're just kind of all existing in this room, watching each other die. And after that, hopefully there'll be a new birth, but that new birth won't be like us. So I, I think that's probably the film that sits with me the most uh, at this viewing or in this viewing. Uh, what about you, Kevin? You know, the the part that I, I found opening up to me on this subsequent viewing, I've seen this film now maybe maybe about five or six times, is that this is basically, in a lot of ways, a horror film, and specifically a, a, a film in the vein of cosmic horror. So you think of H.P. Lovecraft and his idea that mankind is just a speck in the universe and that there are beings and forces out there in the universe to whom all of humankind's achievements and stature and intelligence is but a speck. You know, we, we're, we're insignificant, and if these vastly powerful beings don't necessarily wish us ill, they don't really care about us either and can easily just squish us like bugs. Kubrick's film obviously doesn't really go that far. You know, there's not really an explicitly uh, alien sentience present in this film. There's not like higher beings that they that the people in this film encounter. But there's a thread of say jaundiced contemplation about uh, humanity's capacity for both achievement, but also the way that achievement can lead to 
a uh, diminishment in the nobler qualities in the human spirit. I think it's really uh, notable that this film, one of the one of the first things we see in this film is a uh, humanoid skeleton. It's not obviously a fully evolved human. This film, of course, begins back in the days where we were all just apes grunting and fighting over water holes. But the, the first humanoid we see, even before we see the apes, is a skeleton stretched out in the desert. And I think that that's a really interesting bookend to the, uh, for lack of a better term, space fetus that closes out the film. This, there's this image of rebirth at the end of the film, and there's this image of death and desiccation at the beginning. And I don't think, at least from my perspective, having watched it now, I don't think that Kubrick is saying we progress from this, this death to this new life. I think he's saying more that there's something about those two things that are the same. And there's the sense that advancement and evolution really doesn't get us anywhere except the the dirt nap that we're always headed to in the first place. So I think that that threat of pessimism was something that hadn't occurred to me. And it really increased my appreciation for the first two thirds of this film, while maybe throwing into sharper relief some of the more dissatisfying things that I find in its, in its final act. Yeah, I was I was reading a a book that's edited by Gerald J. Abrams, and he actually writes a chapter in the book about 2001 A Space Odyssey. And he made a connection that I I did not get before. But he spoke of Frederick Nietzsche's book, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. And the songs, the classical music that we hear in the film are renditions of that work. They're interpretations of that work in music form. Now, the idea of whether of whether Kubrick relied on Nietzsche's ideas for this movie, uh, that's kind of debated. But in that magnum opus, Nietzsche writes about the evolution of, of man, and he talks of this superman or this overman that will come in the kind of the next state. And I found that pretty fascinating because that also brings to mind the idea of God and our understanding of God and the death of God that we hear from, from Nietzsche's work pretty often. And technology and this interpretation of the Enlightenment, though the Enlightenment was much more complicated than just a single interpretation. But the idea that we've sort of grown up, we've sort of evolved, and we've discovered new facets of science We've discovered and invented new technology, and we don't really need God anymore. And so all of those ideas are sort of swirling in this film, whether they directly influence Kubrick or not. But you have these creatures who they happen upon this monolith, and it becomes very obvious that something created it. Aliens created it. It's not natural. Which brings to mind the process of evolution, the idea of God. Well, did God create the world as it is? Or these superhuman beings, did they? Or did this come about naturally through evolution? So we're trying to think through all of that. And then also the next stage in life. And I'm in the camp where 
I don't quite know whether the end is hopeful or not. Because in some ways, Kubrick might be saying, hey, look at this space child, the space baby, who comes to Earth without technology in a pure form, this overman, this next stage, and can possibly make the world right again. But then there's another sense that, like you said, it's a cycle, and that cycle continues to go uh, the same way. There's death. And then there's also this pessimism of, well, if the quote-unquote overman comes, if this next stage comes, what happens to us? Uh, Dave, at the end, I know Ebert uh, compares that room, a hotel room or whatever he's in. So Dave kind of shows up through that wormhole for listeners who maybe haven't seen the movie in a while. And so he gets there and he kind of, he sees himself at various stages in life. And then he, he sees himself as an old man and the old man dies. The monolith is there and and the baby comes from his, his death. Ebert compares that to maybe a zoo that these creatures are kind of just watching him. And is that us now? We look back, uh, in, Ku- in Kubrick's mind, we look back at these ape-like creatures and we see them as animals. What will the future, in his mind, see us as? Are we these animals? Are we the next stage? And, you know, meet the new boss? Is he the same as the old boss? So I, there are definitely multiple ways to kind of interpret this film and how it ends. Yeah, the, that ending with the space fetus is, is really interesting to think about because on the one hand, the music, just this overwhelming power of, of music, sound, and image are, are making you, it, it's uplifting. It can't really be read any other way that there's something inspiring about what we're seeing. But if you kind of push that overmastering power of cinema to the side for a second and think about what's actually being conveyed simply through the image, it doesn't necessarily seem hopeful. We know this this ascended being is returning to Earth, but we don't know what it's about to do. It might be coming to Earth to destroy humanity in the same way that the that ape at the beginning learns to use a bone as a weapon. And I think that's kind of the most satisfying way to view 2001 as this exploration of how humankind's advances don't ennoble us. Like we, we become more technologically advanced. We become more secure in our mastery over various facets of existence, but that never uh, gets us away from ourselves. It never makes us stop being essentially, um, very highly advanced simians, at least in Kubrick's eyes. And to him, all of the toys in the world just mean that we are apes with really fancy bones, not not necessarily anything more or less than that. And this gets to what I think is the, the film's strongest point, is the middle segment with Hal. Because there's a lot going on in that segment, and I think it's a fantastic bit of filmmaking, maybe some of the best filmmaking Kubrick ever did. Um, but there's the moment where, you know, the the famous standoff where Dave is in the uh, pod outside of the spaceship and he asks Hal, you know, open the pod bay doors, Hal. And Hal says, I'm sorry, I don't think I can do that. And uh, Dave 
makes up his mind to enter through the emergency hatch and disconnect Hal, essentially killing him. And when he has that moment of realization, there's a shot that Kubrick gives us of the uh, of the pod as it sort of swivels around to position itself to sort of shoot Dave into the emergency airlock and hopefully get him inside before he dies from exposure to outer space. Now, this pod is carrying the dead body of uh, Dave's fellow crew member, Frank, uh, who he went out to retrieve in the first place, and that's how he got stuck outside the ship. He's been, the pod's robotic arms have been holding Frank's body. And then uh, when Dave makes his decision to go inside and kill Hal, the pod swivels around, those claws open, Frank's body kind of floats off to the side of the frame, and eventually Kubrick kind of moves the camera so that Frank's body exits stage right, essentially, and all that we can see is this pod. We don't even see Dave inside. We just see this sleek white globe uh, that is essentially the vehicle for through which Dave is going to visit death upon Hal. And I think that that's really telling that Kubrick is saying, essentially in this moment, Dave is relinquishing something human of himself in order to survive and continue his journey onward. And I don't know, in, in some ways that seems to me, at least on this viewing, as a thesis statement for the entire film, or maybe an encapsulation of the film. The idea that this this whole movie is essentially watching humanity shed everything that's organic and human about ourselves in the name of progress. And I don't know that Kubrick is necessarily saying that's a good thing, despite the inspiring bells and whistles of of that ending. Yeah, no, that's a that's a really great interpretation. And that scene is fantastic. Just it's just thrilling in a pure cinematic way. And the idea, yeah, of, of shedding humanity, of of possibly starting over, but also maybe just beginning where we were already at. And you'll notice throughout the film there's all these references to birthdays. And so you got Dr. Floyd at the beginning, and he's talking about his, his daughter's birthday. And then you got uh, Frank and his parents sing him happy birthday, which I did learn that they had to get rights to that song because, that you know, happy birthday is copyrighted at the time. I don't know if it's anymore. Uh, but I, I think, too, for me, there's this other aspect of the movie that – Seeing it again 10 years later really stood out, and that's the use of technology in the way that we view our world. So there's this great shot at near the beginning of the film, and a, a woman is, is exiting one of the planes as they're going to the moon, and the camera kind of just rotates – because she's going she, – she's got this different kind of gravitational pull on her or no gravitational pull. And so the, the camera kind of twists with her, and it's, it's a really fantastic shot. Later on in the film, we get a close-up of Hal, and we see in his reflection the crew members uh, walking, and, and, and it's that same sort of rotation as they're kind of moving to different parts of the ship. Now we're seeing it from Hal's perspective. Then we also get shots with these kind of slight fisheye looks to them, and that's that's specifically Hal's perspective. And it, it raised this question for me. Is Kubrick t- trying to tell us that technology is the lens by which we view the world now? 
that Hal is our camera. And it's one of the ways that we see this story. And 10 years later, with the change in technology and we have cameras everywhere and we're being watched and listened to almost at all times, it definitely takes on this new sort of sort of meaning now than it did in the past and our creation of these devices. And then I, I think, too, that there's there's something about this film being released in 1968 and it took, what, three or four years to be made. This is in NASA's heyday, right? The heyday of the Mercury, the Gemini, the Apollo programs. And perhaps Kubrick is saying, hey, Icarus is flying too close to the sun. Like this new technology, it's it's allowing us to see the world like we've never – the universe we in a way we've never seen it before. But is that necessarily a good thing or should we – or should we be worried? And that's definitely a new angle now that, you know, 10 years is not long, but technology has changed so much in those 10 years. Kubrick is definitely taking square aim at the common human tendency to be really complacent in, in our advancements. I mean, ever since time immemorial, you know, there's, you see time and again, these societies that think, you know, we've kind of achieved the pinnacle of human advancement. We've become like gods almost, you know, the Tower of Babel, essentially, that that idea that our own hubris is what leads to our downfall. And yet we always come back to the idea that, yes, we we're on the cusp of ascension. We've got things under control. We know what's going on here. I think back to the sequence, uh, the flight to the moon, where we follow this official as he travels to the moon to find out what the deal is with a new monolith that's been dug up on the moon that was apparently deposited there eons ago. And Kubrick, the interesting thing that I find about this sequence is that Kubrick really, he he opens the sequence, of course, with that, that very graceful shot of the uh, spaceship docking with the space station and there's classical music playing, the Blue Danube. It's it's all very graceful, but inside the space station, it's all very blasé. You know, with the, the characters walk around inside the space station with the same sort of nonchalant attitude that you or I might check into a holiday in, right? And there's a call that the scientist that we're following, he places it to his daughter back on Earth and Kubrick shoots uh, him in profile. So we're, we're seeing him in profile, and on the other side of him, we see the planet Earth uh, through a porthole. And because the space station is rotating to maintain its gravity, the Earth is sort of traveling in circles through this porthole that we're seeing, and the, ang- the camera angle makes it look essentially like the world is literally revolving around this scientist. He's so secure in his knowledge, in humankind's achievements, that uh, he, he just, he literally is having the world orbit around him. He thinks he's so great. And then he gets to the moon and humanity discovers there's something else out there that we can't really explain. And that leads to the, of course, the disastrous mission with Hal, Dave Bowman, and the space fetus arguably coming to destroy humanity at the end of the film. You know, you, you can 
argue that interpretation or not, but I think Kubrick's emphasis in that scene that this complacency is so very human, it's every bit as human as using technology in order to destroy others and ourselves that I think you can't really ignore it. And there's this line, and it's kind of on the nose too, but the characters that are in hibernation on the Discovery, and it's said that you know when you're in hibernation, you don't dream. And it's this sense that, hey, we've lost our, we've lost our imagination. And he almost, he almost predicts the, the Apollo program after, you know, Apollo 12. We're just like, oh, we're going to the moon again. And by Apollo 17, it's like, okay, we landed. Yeah, good job. This loss of wonder. And I think another, goal for Kubrick, if he's not concentrating so much on the story aspect, it's these feelings and these emotions. He wants to elicit awe. He wants us to look up and to wonder at the universe, even within our finiteness. And just, I I guess I watched the the Blu-ray that was just released, and I believe this was the remastered cut that, it's not a cut, but the remastered version that Christopher Nolan helped kind of oversee. This is a big influence for him, and you can kind of see, yeah, Interstellar in this film. And just looking at the image and looking at the model making and the way these ships are, are, are sh- you know, revealed in the camera, it's, it's pretty fantastic, and it holds up so well. It's, it's pretty timeless. This movie could have been made 15 years ago. And I wouldn't be surprised because of the level of detail and because of the special effects expert Douglas Trumbull and his work in the movie. And it does inspire awe. I really like specifically the sequence where we go with Dr. Floyd from the main the main base near the moon to where the monolith is. And the... The moon looks fantastic, and we hadn't even landed on it at that time, and I know there's going to be a joke by someone here about Kubrick faking the moon landing, but it really is this kind of wondrous terrain, and it's this dangerous terrain, and I appreciate that. Now, there are moments when, if I'm being honest, I'm watching these these spaceships docking and moving, and it feels a little sluggish, it feels a little much, but when when Kubrick is kind of operating at his fullest, it it does. Uh, I think it does inspire awe within within us, and I think that's his goal. You know, I, I'm glad that you you brought that up about the pacing because I've been you know listen long time listeners of the show may have caught on to a couple of stray comments I've made where I've intimated that I am not the biggest fan of 2001: A Space Odyssey. I've I've seen it so many times that every time I think I'll arrive at it and you know it'll it'll. I'll see what everyone else is is seeing. And it never quite does. And I still don't think I'm all the way there yet. Um, And part of that has to do with the pacing. Although this time around, I think the slow pace of those first two chapters is essential to create this atmosphere and this rhythm that is important for really kind of getting on the wavelength that Kubrick wants you to be on. I think that all of that kind of falls apart with the third act though uh, and this is the the part that I feel bad about because I do honestly want to see what other people see but I think that the beyond the infinite sequence with the light show and the 
uh, sequence where Dave watches himself grow old and the space piece at the end. I don't think it works. I think it's kind of the pinnacle of self-indulgence. And I think it actually works at cross-purposes with the cool uh, control that Kubrick shows with the rest of the film, where he's really demanding the audience to stand apart from his film and really you know, think about it and interpret it, to really become active participants in watching the film rather than letting it wash over us. In his final act where he basically seeks to overwhelm you with the sound design and with all the lights and the the crazy uh, camera tricks he uses to produce these effects. And then, of course, with that final shot with the space fetus, even though I do think there's an interpretation of it that makes it seem of a piece with the rest of the film, I don't think Kubrick... I, I think he gives in to this desire to overwhelm you with sensation in this final act. And I think it works at cross purposes with what he's doing in the rest of the film. And beyond that, I, I just find it kind of interminable. I, I think after a while it stops becoming, uh, interesting and becomes a little bit monotonous. Like we, we have reached the limits of how much these different colors and shots and editing tricks can take us and it becomes kind of a bore. And that's a disappointment given just how wonderful the production design and directing is in the rest of the film. Yeah, I don't know if it's just me, but I do become impatient at times with this movie, and especially during that Stargate sequence that you mentioned. And it, it lasts, what, seven, eight minutes long. So I don't know. It, and this is one of the – it's hard because this is one of those films that people have talked about for decades, will continue to talk about for decades – and I like it. I don't know if you would say I, I love it. Uh, I do appreciate the film. I think part of the movie that doesn't always work for me is that we don't really get well-rounded characters. And I'm not necessarily invested in Dave's fate. I'm curious about his fate. It's the first time I watched it, I'm curious about his fate. But... There's no emotional attachment. He doesn't seem to represent you and me, maybe humanity at large, but we're not necessarily supposed to empathize with him more than just, you know, the feeling of fear and horror at possibly uh, being left to drift in space. So I think that's part of the problem. Now, I think the argument for that has always been, well, that's kind of the point. That's what Kubrick wants to do. It, it's just a character kind of experiencing this, and and we're we're supposed to wonder at the the spaceships and the awe, and we're supposed to consider these philosophical ideas. But I think part of that is because I'm not necessarily tied as much to to Dave. Uh, the end becomes a bit sluggish for me, and we're watching him growing old and. That should hurt more than it does, but it almost feels a bit clinical to me. I mean, I, I agree with you that it is clinical. I don't know that I'm... I, I don't think I agree that it's a problem with the film, because I think that overall what Kubrick is doing with the characters in this film is basically looking at them through an anthropological lens, almost. I, I'm, I, I'm interested in that... Uh, Ebert passage you brought up about the speculation that 
humanity is like an animal in a zoo, or at least Dave is like an animal in a zoo. And, you know, he's just being regarded by these higher intelligences. I think there, there might be something to that in that Kubrick is essentially asking us to stand apart from our own humanity and regard ourselves with as much detachment and objectivity as is possible for uh, people who are asked to assess themselves. So I think having Dave be kind of kind of bland and having all the characters really not really stand out as human beings with full interior lives is true. I, I think it's of a piece with Kubrick's larger purpose with the film. I guess my complaint with that final sequence is similar to yours is not sluggish, although I guess maybe we differ on the reasons why it feels that way. Yeah, and I mean, like I said, I I think I know the defense of that, I, and, and I think you make a good defense, but um, I just I feel like I need something to tie me to the story a little bit more. And we might get into that conversation when we talk about Barry Lyndon and the character development there and the arc with with that character here. So I, I'm, I'm really not sure where to go about it, but there is something about this film that keeps me at a distance, even though I do very much appreciate what it's trying to do and, and how it's trying to do that. Uh, the monolith, I, I think that's a great piece of set design. It resembles kind of this doorway, this passageway into a, a new realm and what do we make of that? Do we do we see it as this holder of supernatural alien power? Or to go back to Roger Ebert, he, he kind of interpreted that monolith as uh as an object that would inspire creativity. So his idea was when the ape-like creatures see it at the beginning, they realize, hey, this was this isn't natural. This was made, and if this was made, it'd have to be made with a tool. And that in turn spurred on this next stage of evolution. Oh, let's pick up a bone. Maybe it was made with a tool like this. That's a fascinating interpretation. I think I'm more so on the I think they hold some sort of alien powers or something. But all of that is sort of, I think, secondary to what Kubrick wants. And that's, I want you to think about your place in the universe. I want you to think about technology and what that does to us as human beings. I want you to think about how we got here. Was there a creator? Was it all just sort of a natural phenomenon? And I think if you look at the film from that perspective, you don't really need to understand all the details or look at all the details or know about it. Those are fun to talk about, but you just kind of walk away with those deep questions. And that feels like that kind of feels like the the point of this movie. I might go even farther than that and to say that that's really the only way to to watch this movie is not to try to think too hard about it, because in some ways I don't think. Kubrick really thought too hard about it. If we're talking about if if he devoted a lot of thought to what it all means and sort of mapping it out in a almost Christopher Nolan way where certain things represent certain other things and the symbols are very clear. I don't think Kubrick did that. And I think it's the the film becomes less satisfying if you expect it to really be meaningful in that way. I think it works better as this exercise in, like you said, inviting the viewer to 
contemplation, um, that's really the mode that you have to approach this film in. And it's the mode that I, at least personally, find to be the most satisfying way to approach 2001. Because frankly, I, I don't think as an intellectual exercise in terms of saying something that's truly meaningful in uh, very clear ways. I don't think it's all that incisive. I think actually, if you if you want a movie that really gets at something deep and meaningful about human existence, I'd go for Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life any day of the week over 2001. But I do think 2001's virtues as an invitation to contemplation are really where it's at and helps me appreciate it a little bit more, even though I find myself at the end still being kind of on the outside looking in as far as the 2001 fandom goes. Yeah, I will say this. My neck is still sore from the whiplash uh, that occurred from Dr. Strangelove to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Those films are so <laughs> different. And, it, you know, this was his next film after Dr. Strangelove. There are four years in between, but it feels like 20. I mean, it's just it's just kind of wild. Yeah, yeah. The, there's certain similarities in kind of the impulse to slowly regard humankind almost from the outside rather than as, you know, one fellow human to another. But just in terms of scale and ambition and the weight of craft that goes into 2001, you're right. Like there is a huge evolutionary leap. Maybe, Stu- maybe Stanley Kubrick... Uh, discovered his own monolith in the interim between Strange Love and 2001. Who knows? <laughs> and, you know, there, there are, like you said, similarities. I, I Part of me was wishing for some more of that, that dark humor. There is, I think one of my favorite lines is when he says, Happy birthday, Frank. It's just really kind of eerie and creepy and and funny in its own way and you get a couple of uh, moments like that but yeah it's it's very very different uh, so we've reached the part of the episode listeners where we are done with our reviews and now we're going to take an opportunity to recommend something from the world of television and or film to you kevin i'm eager to see if your recommendation this week kind of has some sort of connection point to either one of the films that we talked about so what is what is your recommendation I, you know, I don't know if I have that big of a tie-in other than that this recommendation was directed by another titan of the American cinematic scene. It's uh, 1982's The King of Comedy, directed by the great Martin Scorsese. Um, I love this film, and I came to it rather late. I'm a little bit ashamed to say that I only saw it maybe... Uh, a year or two ago. So, you know, late, late comer, but better late than never. This is a really great look at the nature of celebrity, uh, the nature of comedy, and sort of almost a photo negative in some ways of Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. Only in this film, we have Rupert, Rupert Pupkin, both of them played by De Niro, both of them very obsessive in their own ways, but both of them manifesting it very different differently uh scorsese is telling the story about pupkin who's an aspiring comic who idolizes this television personality played by jerry lewis going so far as to kidnap him in order to get his big break and showcase his comedy stylings to the world scorsese is saying all sorts of really great things about obsession and uh entertainment 
and the industry that surrounds it. I think it's really something special, and it's one of the Scorsese films that doesn't seem to get talked about as much as the big three of Taxi Driver, Raging Ball, and Goodfellas. So I'm always glad to shine a little bit more light its way. Yeah, I, I mentioned this a little bit on our Scorsese cast like a year and a half ago, but it is it's great. It's my second favorite Scorsese film behind Taxi Driver. It really is fantastic. And Jerry Lewis gives uh, a great performance. It's always good to see Jerry Lewis outside of his, you know, normal classic Hollywood shtick. Uh, and he, he does a good job here. Yeah, I agree. It's a really fine film. What do you have for us this week? Yeah, so I don't really have any connection point to the to either movies uh, this week that we reviewed it is a, a this movie that i'm going to recommend is, is a science fiction horror film so you could find some sort of connection point there but back in 2017 a movie came out that did pretty well and i i thought it looked kind of dumb a sequel came out this year i thought the sequel trailer didn't look very good but i ended up watching both of them because there are some people that i really do trust who like the movies and i i like both of them and that is the happy death day series so both of these movies are directed by christopher landon and the first film follows this college student is played by jessica roth and she relives her birthday which also falls on friday the 13th over and over again and each day she's she's murdered she's killed and she has to solve her murder. Well, that all kind of works out in the sequel. There's a, a little ripple in that entire story, and she has to relive the same day again. And these aren't films that are, you know are going to be talked about probably in 20 years, but they're both pretty fun. They're thrilling. They're funny, and they do a nice job of connecting this horror story to grief. And we've seen that in a number of different films, including The Babadook. But we, we get this journey with this character who is learning how to not only cope with the idea of her death, but the death of people who are close to her. So I, I like both of these movies. I think there'll be another one that's coming out. It kind of sets up, you know, another story. But uh, they're both they're really fun, and uh, I I really liked it. One of the one of the better experiences. Happy Death Day to you uh, at the theaters this year. I, I had a good time. Happy Death Day is one of those dark horse horror films that, or I guess quasi horror films anyway, that seems always fly under the radar and not a whole lot of people see it and rhapsodize about it. And then a couple of years later, it pops up and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Why, why didn't anyone, why didn't anyone ever tell me about this? And I feel like, at least from my perspective, that's what's happening here because you're not the first person to talk up this movie to me, but hearing you talk about it makes me think that maybe I should seek it out and, and give it some time and and see whether it's cast the same spell of enjoyment over me as <laughs> yeah and maybe people will be talking about it in 20 years and you know, i i don't know but yeah it was it was definitely enjoyable and i think happy death day to you is is out so i think you can you can see it at home and all that so uh, next week listeners we're going to be talking about spider-man far from home i'm really excited about that kevin that was on 
your most anticipated list of the summer. So that's going to be a good conversation. We're also going to continue our summer of Stan with the 1971 film A Clockwork Orange. I've not seen that before. Kevin, you haven't seen that before. It is streaming on Netflix, so if our listeners want to kind of catch up with that before we talk about it, you can find it there. Or I'm sure you can purchase it somewhere. It's it's out there. Uh, for now, we want to thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host is Kevin McLenathan. And until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0.